Cerebral palsy is a clinical diagnosis which describes a wide spectrum of neurological disability, all as a result of some sort of trauma to the developing brain, pre or postnatally. I'm Navjot Lada, Clinical Reviews Editor, and I've come to Great Ormond Street Hospital to talk to Neil Wimala-Sundara, a consultant in paediatric neurodisability and one of the authors of the latest clinical review to be published on the bmj.com. Neil, can you tell us about how a diagnosis of cerebral palsy is made? I've mentioned that it encompasses a wide range of severities, but what are the important things for general doctors to be aware of if they're looking for any signs? So I think the, the important thing really about cerebral palsy is to remember that, that term on its own is just a very big, broad umbrella term and in itself is a little bit meaningless. All it means is that there's been an injury to the brain and there's been some resultant difficulty in movement and as the new definition highlights, there's often difficulties associated with sensory uh, problems, feeding, epilepsy and, and, and other things as well. So really when you think about cerebral palsy, you mustn't stop at cerebral palsy being the diagnosis. You then have to go on further into describing what type of cerebral palsy is. That's the, the motor pattern, so what type of stiffness does a child have or not stiffness in some cases. What's the distribution of that? So which parts of the body does it affect? And then you have to describe the comorbidities that go along because they, all of those components make up for the difficulties the child may face. And really, again, when you think a child might have cerebral palsy, the most important thing that you should be thinking of, first of all and foremost, is really what caused that cerebral palsy. Rather than thinking this is cerebral palsy and then moving on, you should really be thinking what's, what's the etiology of that. And cerebral, cerebral palsy, as we said, it's, it's really because there's been a, a disturbance or injury to the developing brain. And this can happen at any time. So very early on in utero, it can happen around the time of birth. And then it can happen in the postnatal period. Um, different countries use different cutoffs, often except around a year to two years. It's just that when you have a brain injury a little bit older than that, the brain's had time to develop different skills. And so we'll call that an acquired brain injury because your pattern of injury and pattern of disability will be very different rather than an injury that's happened early on. So really the most important thing is to think about what's the cause of the cerebral palsy and that's really from taking a good history and when you take a good history sometimes it becomes quite obvious that children might be born very prematurely, there might have been infection, there might have been problems like placental abruption which would have led to hypoxia in the fetus or it might have been something that's happened later on so hyperglycemia in the postnatal ward or infections and sadly we do see things like non-accidental injury as well as a cause and trauma as a cause of cerebral palsy in very early life. In the review, you talk about the things, um, the sort of signs that might lead a GP or a parent to raise concerns about um, something being wrong. Um, commonly, that's a sort of a motor developmental issue, but you also point out that there could be other causes. Can you talk us through some of those um, features that might be apparent? Yeah. So again, as I said, a lot of you know, a lot of children will present to the GP because the family are concerned. It might be during their routine screening, so depending on where you live in the country, depends on what routine screening you still have, so at six weeks or at eight months as well. Um, but a lot of children will present to their GP because the family have concerns, and I think the key is really taking those concerns seriously. Um, whilst a lot of children do have developmental difficulties which just go away, I think if families present to you a few times and it's really you know something that needs to be taken quite seriously, and there are kind of more, uh, kind of, there's more research methods looking at children's movements in very early months of life and how you can identify cerebral palsy from that. But that's really quite a specialised thing done by an expert. I think the things that for the general practitioner to be looking out for are one, acknowledging the parents' concerns, looking for difficulties like feeding difficulties, persistent feeding difficulties, or difficulty, we say, with 
changing nappies, not reaching milestones, all of those sorts of features that would make you think this child needs further assessment. Okay, just to point out at this point that the clinical review, which is now on the bmj.com, it links to an excellent resource called pathways.org, which I hadn't heard of before reading the review. Um, but there has it has picture charts for early motor surveillance, um, which is to help healthcare professionals just identify what are the sort of atypical and typical things you might see at certain stages of development. And I found them really helpful just to kind of, you know, just as a refresher really of what, what, what I should be seeing at, say, a, a routine check or, you know, when parents raise concerns. Um, so they're, they're available, you know, there are lots of resources, it seems, available to help with that. So, so the point for a concerned GP or, you know, to act on concerned parent, parental concerns um, to refer on to child development services is just if, you know, as you've just described, if they're yeah. not meeting milestones and... That's right. And when um, those services are assessing a child, what might that in- assessment involve? Mm-hmm. Okay, well, again, as I said, as in everything in medicine, it all starts with a really good history. So a lot of the time you can you know, identify difficulties from the history. And the different types of cerebral palsy that are uh, talked about in the review, so we talk about things like spastic diaplegia, dyskinetic cerebral palsies, they're all caused by slightly different types of injury to the brain occurring at different times and different stages of development of the brain. And you can often elucidate those from the history. You can get information about when things happen just by doing that, and that will heighten your uh, alertness, as it were, to, to, to think that there's something might be wrong. But really what the team will do when they see the child is take a good history, talk about feeding, how's it latching on, is the child attentive, is the child looking around as they should do, and are their movements, how their movements progress, so are they going through the normal uh, developmental milestones, and, and, and what are their movement patterns like, because there's a natural progression, even if, you're, even if we're not at a specific motor milestone, the way a child moves will we'll give you a lot of information about whether there's something wrong or whether it's just a normal pattern of, of development. Okay, and um, when the when you are suspecting that cerebral palsy is the diagnosis, what what do you need to do in order to confirm that diagnosis? Okay, well, the, there's a the cerebral palsy is a clinical diagnosis, so you don't need scans to 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 be able to diagnose this. But we're kind of we've. Um, all see that performing brain scans and things like that are, are good practice. So really, to make a diagnosis of cerebral palsy, you need to describe the movement pattern and the distribution of that movement pattern. You then need to try and tie that to a history of what caused that difficulty. So if there's a history of prematurity or problems uh, around time of birth, you then would like to do an MRI brain scan. And then the MRI brain scan, you try and correlate the signs that you see on that to the history that you've got and the clinical findings. And usually, if all three of those things fit, then you'll be happy that this is a, a case of cerebral palsy. If any of those things don't fit, that just makes you think, should I be calling it cerebral palsy or should I be waiting or should I be getting a more specialist opinion? And that's often the work that we do here at Great Ormond Street Hospital where children have been given a diagnosis of cerebral palsy but something doesn't quite fit. And it's very important to get the diagnosis right. Um, everything that doesn't move correctly it often gets called cerebral palsy but now with more genetic techniques we're identifying more and more different conditions and also some of these conditions have a different trajectory so some of them do deteriorate with time and it's very important for families to have the right diagnosis especially if they're planning for other children in their family. Okay um, and what about actually explaining that diagnosis can you talk us through how you talk to parents and, and what kind of information you give them? Yeah so you know it's 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 
it can be very difficult sharing difficult uh, sharing difficult information like this about diagnosis, which have a which has a lifelong uh, implication. Parents are often quite alert to the fact that something's not quite happening, and I think when we survey parents about what they want, they actually want to know have a diagnosis early on so they can know what to expect and also how to plan for the future as well. So I think the utmost thing is being honest with families, but also not saying things that you're not 100% sure of as well. So if I do see a child where I have concerns about movement, my first indication, my first explanation to families is that I have some concerns that we need to investigate this further. And that might be doing therapy assessments, it might be doing more assessments or collecting information about what happened in the neonatal period. It might also then be organising further investigations and the primary investigation for diagnosis of cerebral palsy is, a, is an MRI brain scan. And then only when all of that information is together would I be more confident to go back to a family and say this is the absolute diagnosis because then I then have to try and describe what I expect is going to happen in the future. I think the, the biggest questions that um, patients ask is, well, is what's wrong? Um, and then the other thing is about what's the diagnosis? And what's the prognosis? And it's sometimes very difficult to answer those questions um, in the first place. And it's the, I find that my best uh, method is actually being quite truthful with families, being supportive and saying that you'll be there to follow the child up and try and address difficulties as they arise. I think something in terms of good practice is that when you are sharing this sort of difficult information with family, it's often useful for families to either bring other family members along so they're not on their own. It's also useful for the person delivering that information to have someone else in the room with them who can often maybe answer some of the other questions that families may have. So often we share this sort of information with a therapist in the room. The therapist might have more practical information that they can provide about what's going to happen in the future. And also often when doctors are delivering this sort of information they have to rush off somewhere else. It's often useful having a contact person for that family that can maybe stay with them for a little while or even have a contact that they can come back to and speak out to afterwards. And in child development services there's often a clinical nurse specialist or a patient liaison type person uh, who can help with this sort of thing. So I think it's, it's kind of making sure you're saying the right information and collecting all the information properly beforehand and then also sharing that in a very delicate way that's you know meaningful for the family and, and respectful. And are there any um, specific uh, resources that you might direct them to anything kind of that you feel is useful for them to know about that they can go away and look up or access? Yeah. So there's there's quite a few there's quite a few websites um, scope is a very good website that's uh, um, a, a good a society for children with cerebral palsy. Um, who are often a good contact to start off with. There's contact to family service as well, who um, have contact resources for other families with conditions of similar con of, for similar conditions. So they often have lots of rarer conditions as well, which is very good for families as well. Um, I still use the BMJ article that was written by Peter Rosenbaum in 2002 now, or 2003, and that's an excellent review of cerebral palsy. It really does help families and other clinicians really understand what cerebral palsy means and what's going to happen for the future. Um, and I also direct families to the Can Child website, which is Peter Rosenbaum's service in Canada, and that's just Can Child, if you type that into Google. Um, and that gives you some excellent resources, again, how, how, again, how services should be uh, run for families as well. Okay, excellent. Um, and moving on a bit now about sort of management um, and the practice around management and um, the review discusses how the focus has moved from physical classifications of cerebral palsy to functional ones can you explain to us why that's important and what that means 
Yeah, I think when people um, think of cerebral palsy, they immediately just think it's a disorder of movement and posture. So in the in the strictly speaking, we still do classify it by um, motor type. So this is be it spasticity, dystonia, choreatosis, and also the, the distribution of that. We tend not to say diplegia so much anymore. We tend to use words like bilateral, unilateral. Um, and that's very good for describing the cerebral palsy and relating it to the etiology um, of what the cause of that cerebral palsy is. But we now know that um, there's a lot more to it than just the motor aspect. And as we said, the new definition of cerebral palsy that came out in about 2007 really makes the clinician think about the other comorbidities, so problems like cognition, communication, seizures, all of those sorts of things, which are often more meaningful to the family than the motor aspect. Um, we talk about function now because there's the international um, classification of function and disability where we relate body structure to activity and participation. And as clinicians, we often focus on body structure, so the bit that's not working so well, uh, but don't often relate that to activity or participation. And when we survey children and families, it's participation in society that's the most important thing for them. And if we are providing an intervention, we need to ensure that it affects the participation and activity. So our functional classifications now are really to do with kind of what the abilities are of the child. And the two main ones that we use now are something called the Gross Motor Function Classification System. And this describes a child's uh, movement ability. And it's classified from one to five. It's done according to age group, because as you know, children develop and they can do different things at different ages. Um, and it really helps communication. So if I spoke to another doctor that deals with cerebral palsy and I said I had a child with a bilateral spastic cerebral palsy, they had they were GMSES level three, they know exactly what that means. If I said, please, can you see this child with cerebral palsy? That clinician doesn't know anything about that child. So I think it's these, these sorts of uh, classification, functional classification systems help us communicate much better. It helps patients as well and families because we can, knowing the GM, the gross motor function classification level, we can predict what's going to happen in the future, what sort of interventions might be needed, and also set goals appropriately so families aren't chasing goals that aren't appropriate for that child. Um, and there's a similar classification system that we use for the upper limb. Other classification systems are coming in for feeding ability, level of communication. So it goes on, on and on. Every system is getting a classification. Um, but I think the one that we would like everyone to be using for cerebral palsy is the gross motor function classification. It helps us identify the difficulties or the, the abilities of that child and also it helps us produce research because we can now compare like groups of children with cerebral palsy with like groups. In the old days a lot of the research was done on mild, moderate, severe which to one person means one thing and to another person means another thing especially when you're trying to compare data across countries. Okay. And as the review describes, the focus is on improving functioning and improving participation. And um, The other thing that comes across is that you know when you're managing common symptoms of cerebral palsy, the, those symptoms are quite far-ranging, you know, anything from motor um, problems to swallowing difficulties, intellectual impairment might be an issue, um, which, you know, suggests that the best care for these children is multidisciplinary, multi-specialty. Um, what's your feeling on the best way of kind of delivering a sort of joined-up care, holistic care that, you know, is good, good for patients and their families? 
Yeah, I think, yeah, as I said, the, the, the term cerebral palsy on its own is unfortunately a little bit meaningless. It's really kind of about the difficulties and the strengths that the child has that the focus should be on. It's very important not to use the medical model with children with dis- any sort of disability, be it cerebral palsy or any other condition. The medical uh, aspect is only one part of it, and really kind of to help with integ- with um uh, participation and activity in in the community it really takes a lot of work from physiotherapy occupational therapy psychology speech therapy and really it's this team around the child working that helps children uh, get to the, uh, to the you know get the most out of uh, inclusion into society okay um and where might a GP fit into all of this? So I'm a GP and I find that my level of involvement can vary hugely. So there are some some children and families who I don't see at all. I just see letters that kind of come back from specialist services and others where, you know, you are acting more as a kind of coordinator. Um, but what's what's your feeling on how, how a GP can, what a GP can offer? Yeah, so I think the GP is integral to all of this, actually, because um, they're often the first port of call. Uh, and families often remember what that first consultation was like. So even when I see children at 16 years old, they'll often remember how information was broken to them at that very first stage. So I think the GP is very integ- is integral. They are the family doctor, after all. And even though with some of the children with more complex needs that may not come back to the, di- to the GP directly, you know, every child gets unwell for whatever reasons. They get coughs, colds, everything the same. And often the GP is the first port of call, not only for medical support, but for also social support for that family as well. Uh, and also, there is a lot of stress with it involved in caring for some children with significant physical disability. And the GP has a very important role in monitoring that and monitoring how the family is, is coping. So I don't see the GP simply as a person that collects the letters from the specialist or dispenses the medication that the specialist wants. I really see them as an integral person, as the first port of call, really, for most complaints that the child or the family may have. Um, the impact on parents... Um and other members of the family. I mean, this is a condition that can take a sort of physical, social, emotional, financial toll, mm. not on the child and, and on the family. Um, what kind of support is available for other family members? So, again, um, again, child development services have a, a wide range of services. That's, and then uh, most children uh, with a significant disability will also have children with disabilities team involved and this is a social services base for children with disability and it's not just about providing extra needs for that child in the environment so in terms of things like home adaptations but it's also about the welfare of the whole family and how people are coping so child development services are quite well set up uh, in that respect uh, in terms that there are social uh, disability social workers which can get involved with the family. I think one thing that's important in this situation, though, is also we often direct parents back to the GP, especially when we know that stress is a problem, sometimes depression can be a problem, and it's really being able to identify these. And often, as a paediatrician, we're not really sure where the best services are. So we often direct families back to their GP so that who might be able to direct us to that. But certainly for the children, in terms of support for the family, there's usually a, a children with disabilities team, which is social work-based, who can help in these situations. And then coming back to um, the point about transitioning from sort of childhood, adolescence to adulthood, um, are there any specific services for, you know, adults with cerebral palsy? Or, as you said, is it, does it go back to the, the GP? Yeah, it's, uh, it's unfortunately... Um 
when children are looked after in paediatric environments, they are looked after quite holistically. So the paediatrician will look at lots of different aspects. They have access to lots of different therapies uh, and also education that is there and social services. When children uh, reach uh, adulthood, it does a lot of the impetus does fall back onto the GP and then it becomes very condition specific. So if I do have a physical problem, you might be seeing the orthopedic surgeon. If you have a neurological problem you might, uh, or seizures, you might see the neurologist, but it does become a little more fragmented at that stage so to my knowledge there aren't many rehabilitation services there are adult learning disabilities teams so if there's significant learning difficulties that go on you may then get a supervising uh, adult learning disabilities team to look after you but if you don't have significant learning disabilities uh, and it's mainly physical disabilities it then goes back to becoming the GP and then referring to orthopedics or referring to whichever specialist you need so the GP becomes the main uh, source, a body of resource for that family. You've been listening to Neil Wimler-Sundra talking about management of cerebral palsy in children. Neil's clinical review is now available on thebmj.com.